Last week was um, U2's grace, a thought that could change the world. Then I suppose over this one we could say sweet the sin, but bitter the taste in my mouth. Salvation seems to be assured down the road at the end of chapter one. And then suddenly we're back into this amazing chapter two. If you're British, then Jonathan get through the embarrassment of some of those readings there. Peterson, he's not British or Victorian. He uh, says, tell her to quit dressing like a whore displaying her breasts for sale. If she refuses, I'll rip her off her clothes and expose her naked as a newborn. It's all very earthy. It's all very non-Presbyterian, if you want me to put it that way. It's the reality of life, I guess. Gomer, in the acting out, which we looked at in the first week of this series, because that's what we're into, we're into one man who is acting out and the wife that he chooses and the children that he has, um, the whole story of not only Israel, but we might find out later ourselves. Gomer's acting this out as she plays the harlot, as she goes off for the momentary thrill or the reward. If you were listening closely, she goes to those who um, give her wool and her linen. And uh, later on in the part of the chapter that Jonathan will take us on from next week, there's uh, more of that looking for the reward from her lovers. Gomer goes after her lovers, verses 5 and 7. She's unfaithful to her husband. And in this passage, it's pretty graphic. It's very worldly in inverted commas. And it's very sexual. The sex for Gomer is about reward. Was the prophet poor? Maybe. Was she not getting the finery that it talks about in these verses? Perhaps. Or maybe it was just within Gomer to see that which looked shiny, to see that which looked exciting, to see that what was put before in temptation and just not have the ability to not head after it. And we find that God is going to expose her, leave her in deep need. Suppose we could look at that. If you're stripped naked, you're exposed in the sexual practices that you're involved in, but you're also looking as if you're degraded and you're maybe deprived and at the bottom. There's something of God bringing about the harvest that Gomer is sowing. And this is Israel. That's what this whole thing is about. That's what the prophet is trying to reveal to us. The people have become unfaithful to the God who we sang about earlier as the bride waiting for the bridegroom and have become taken and ensnared and flirted with by this Baal or Baal or whatever we want to call this Canaanite God. A God of fertility as many of the gods in Canaan were. We'll come in a few weeks' time to look at that whole issue of land and God giving us harvest and how we need harvest 
We'll come to that in the middle of October. But what we find here is that perhaps Israel, in becoming involved in their own sexual perversions and the cults that were around them, it was all about trying to magic up this fertility. The God they knew about maybe didn't know as much about harvest or the land as the gods that they were being told about by those around them. So maybe we could just make sure we could just get involved with their gods so that that would just help us to make sure we have every base covered. And so um, they get involved with cultic prostitutes and all kinds of other things. Gomer mirroring almost literally what the people of Israel had become unfaithful to. And it seems there's a lack of trust going on. It seems as if their knowledge of God isn't what it should be. Verse 8, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain. In other words, the idea that Israel was flirting around with the gods that might know, know more about the land and the harvest and the environment was actually as a result of them not knowing enough about their own God. Because if they would have come to terms with it, they would have known that God had given them it, so God knows what it's about. And also a lack of trust. Can we trust God for the harvest? Or should we look for other places to trust? And those themes go the whole way through Hosea. A people who don't acknowledge or know the God that they're supposed to be involved with and a people who as a result of not knowing that God get themselves involved through their lack of trust in that God and all kinds of other things. I suppose it's a bit like Abraham. Remember? Then to chapter 2, we're looking at Abraham and we're looking at those stars and we're realizing that one of them is for you and that when Abraham and God were looking at those stars and when Abraham got this, whatever way it was, God spoke to him about these stars and um, he said, okay, my descendants are going to be this incredibly vast number, but I don't have any children. And he lost his faith in his God or he lacked a little bit of trust in his God. So he went off with Hagar and had a child that way because he wasn't prepared to wait for his God. Even Abraham doubted, lacked trust, and then thought, this will be a way to do it. We'll do it the easier way than just waiting for God to move. So that's where the children of Israel were. They were involved in all these allegiances around them, this unfaithfulness, and it was... Um, bringing itself into uh, these sexual scenarios. And of course, we might say, isn't that amazing in those old times how people were foolish enough to think that? And then, how contemporary? In the midst of where capitalism is our great harvest, where we're looking for ways to increase our profits, how do we go about increasing the profits? How many ads do we see on TV? Where for some 
minor little thing, it will improve your sex life. You drink this coffee, the kitchen could go wild. You drive this car, and you just don't know what you could get into. You go into a magazine shop, and what are they trying to sell every magazine with? Today we find ourselves almost in a similar scenario. Sex sells. It's the goal of every movie. It's the goal of every song. It's the goal of everything that we do. And it has become almost the escape, has it not? If you're living in a world where you can't look to the transcendent in the spiritual, in belief in God, then how do you get release, escape? Maybe, maybe, in our secular religion. And mark my words, it is a religion. Heard a guy on this week talking about why we shouldn't wear a cross around our neck. And I'm thinking, fella, you're more pharisaical than the Pharisees. You have more rules and laws and spiritual, religious narrowness going on than the Christians that you're trying to bring down. We say that this is a secular England, a religious free England. Uh uh. Uh uh. This is religion. No God in it. But it's as fundamentalist as any other bad side of religion can be. So in that world of secularization, the alternative in our world to maybe our Christian faith, we will find that sex sells. It's the goal. It's the escape. It's the transcendence. It is for capitalist fertility. And we don't have to think very long to see that this is not just Israel. This story is all of us. It's the prodigal son, is it not? In verse 7, we find, she will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. Is there not almost a, just a same verse almost as the prodigal son who went and flirted with all the hedonism of his day and then thought, I will return to my father because I'll be better off then than I am now. It's not even a going back because there's any sense of guilt or any sense of repentance. It's actually still for, I will be better off if I do that. But there is this sense where the need comes that we might just turn around. We might go home. For Gomer to her husband, for the prodigal son to his father. And are we then not back in Eden? Is it not all of our stories? Were we not connected with this God? Were we not intimately connected with him in such a way that he walked in the garden? But then suddenly we saw something that looked, oh, that looks good. Oh, that tastes good. Oh, I don't trust God. I would rather trust my own eyesight or the lies that I'm being deceived with that that I could reach beyond myself 
And then when we reach beyond ourselves, like the prodigal son, like Gomer, like Israel, we end up being less than we were meant to be. By reaching beyond, we end up less. Looking for more, we end up less. I was... uh, pondering chapter two this week when I discovered that my friend who jumped on top of an organ right there a few months ago, Ian Archer, had written the title track of this week's number one album. And I thought, that's interesting. I don't know anything about example. And I thought that'd be a wee bit dancing rap for me. But as Ian wrote the title track, out I went and skipped every track except Ian's and I put it on. And I'm listening to it in the car on the way back from getting it, and I'm thinking, this is Hosea. Now, Ian had interestingly said to me when he taxed me about the song, he says, example, you'll find him interesting. He, he's got some real acute awareness of where we are, but maybe not too much awareness of how to get from where we are to somewhere else. And the acute awareness of playing in the shadows, a song where... This guy goes after the young girls that are available to him. Maybe a pop star. Maybe just somebody on the street. Maybe somebody in university. They go after the young girls that are available to him and leaves his wife or partner, but seems to be wife, back at home. And he gets himself swallowed up in these shadows, going after that which looks good, going after that which tastes good, going after that that he seems to be enjoying. And then he says, playing in the shadows People call it shallow. Tell me something I don't know. Playing in the shadows. People call it shallow. Maybe one day I'll be lonely, knocking down the door, keep falling into shadows. I'm playing in the shadows all night long. So good to play with bad girls. I'm still young. Keep on saying hello. I know what they want. You'll find me in the shadows. When he comes back home, wanting to go back home, his wife is saying, no, no, I'll expose you. I'll leave you wanting. What you reaped, you sow. A playing in the shadows. Or on Friday night right here, Yvonne Lyon and her husband David Lyon and Gareth Davis-Jones, it was a beautiful night of music. Real quality music for the mind, uh, political It was um, spiritually intimate at times. Uh, And there was a song that Yvonne has has on her new album, which is she shared about her mother, who had been left in an orphanage at a young age, discovering as a 60-year-old that her mother, who had abandoned her, was still alive, living in Fife. And the dilemmas that went on within the family as to what to do about that, And the song that she then sang called Different Kind, which is a beautiful song, took this real twist on the story because it was her mother that was abandoned by her grandmother. And it was her mother that grew up being the one who never knew her mother. And it would seem that her mother was the one who was the victim. But in the song, Yvonne's asking Was it her mother that was the victim or the grandmother that left? She says, was the unwanted one you? Because now they have a choice. Do we want to go after 
the real mother. Was the sore hearted one you? Because you were the one that lost your child. Was the fearful one you? And it just seemed to me to be a song again about this. What do we reap? Because when we reap some things, we don't always get what we want. So what? What about us this morning? In some ways, this is what Chris Hunter was going on about on Sunday night. God gives us material blessing. And we twist it and pervert it into materialism. And on Sunday night, I used in the communion that we did a Rich Mullins line, or a verse, surrender, don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. And I've beat my head against so many walls, but now I'm falling down. I'm falling on my knees. I'd rather fight God for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. It's surrendering to trusting in God again. It's saying I will acknowledge that God knows better for me in my life than I do, than the advertisers do, than the capitalist system does, than all my peers do, than the Joneses next door do. I will not fight God for the things that really at the bottom of my heart I know that are just playing in the shadows I will just take what he gives that I need you don't always get what you want the stones say but if you try sometimes you just might get what you need want need what is it that we're after? The questions, and we finish today with questions. Who do we fancy? I love finding that out among the teens. Who do they fancy? I'll not embarrass anybody by mentioning names, but, you know, I'm looking around just. Who do you fancy? Eh? Fancy my mate? But what about us? What in the society that we live in? What is it? that we want and don't know that I can trust God don't know I can wait for God so I'll be unfaithful to what is it we fancy what do we flirt with what are the things that we just get ourselves almost dangerously close to how patient are we on God's time. How greedy are we to reach for more and beyond and to end up less? How are we abusing God's material gifts to us? We'll look at that when we come to the harvest more closely. But what are we fighting God for? And what is it he's given us that we need are we reaching beyond and ending up less? Being at the front of a, a, a church on Thursday 
at Ross and Magella's wedding was a good place to be when you're looking at Hosea chapter 2, I guess. So you're pondering that. You're pondering it in every place you are during a week when you read the text. And, um, and you're thinking about um, just who we are as human beings. Because when you get married at the front of a church and you walk out of that church, no matter with how lovely your bride or your husband might be, there are other people in the world and there's something within us that is attracted to the cultural beauty we're defaulted into. But we've got to learn in marriage to be faithful to one. And we've got to learn in our spiritual lives to be faithful to God. We've got to find accountability. We've got to trust. We've got to get to know. We've got to be at peace with who he is and what God wants to do for us and not be tempted by the momentary, the rewards, and all the other stuff that's out there but would make us unfaithful. Tonight we might look at some of these questions if I feel it right as I go away this afternoon to look at the worship that the guys are doing tonight and see how we might fit this around. But who do we fancy? Who do we flirt with? How patient are we? How greedy are we? How are we abusing God's gifts? Do we go for the momentary instead of the eternal? Are we reaching beyond to become less? Have we learned to be faithful to one? Because if we don't, we'll reap what we sow. Let's pray. Lord, I know very little, not even as much as I probably should do about Hosea's world. But I can only imagine that the world we live in is much more of a bombardment of temptation than his was. We have so many more opportunities to be tempted, to be teased with something that we can put our trust in, to be offered the quick reward, the momentary pleasure. And Lord, we walk out of here into that world. And so we ask that we would learn to surrender. We ask that we would learn to be faithful to one. We ask that we wouldn't fight you for the things that we don't really want, that we can't really take with us. Instead of just receiving the things that you give that we need. Lord, help us to know you better so that we can trust you more. Give us a vision that we can walk into the world following. 
In Christ's name, amen.